Daniel chapter 9 this morning. I encourage you, if you have your Bible, if you turn there, if you don't have one, there's one provided for you there uh, in the pew in front of you. Daniel chapter 9 uh, begins uh, the chapter that, at the end of the chapter, is perhaps one of the most uh, debated and hotly contested passages of Scripture uh, inside the whole Bible, which you're going to have to wait another week before we get to that point of chapter 9. Uh, and it's sad to say, because as much as verses 24 to the end of chapter 9 get almost the bulk of the attention of perhaps even the entire book of Daniel, what we find here in the beginning part of chapter 9, I think, should be the highlight of the book of Daniel. Uh, because what we find here in these opening verses, from verse 1 down to really about verse 19, is perhaps one of the best examples of prayer that we find in the entirety of the Scripture. And perhaps if you've never studied Daniel before, perhaps you didn't even know that this was here. Because again, in Daniel chapter 9, it's the whole thing about the 70 weeks, and when do the 70 weeks end, and when do they begin, and when are they cut off, and when do they stop, and when do they start back up again. Everything is focused on those 70 weeks that so many people miss what happens here in the beginning of Daniel chapter 9 as Daniel opens his heart up to the Lord. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at verses, again, 1 down through verse 21. And, and I want to preach a message this morning entitled, Don't Just Wait, Pray. Don't Just Wait, Pray. Daniel chapter 9, if you'd stand with me for the reading of God's Word. In the first year of Darius, the son of Asterius, the Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the book of the number of the years, which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet, for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek Him by prayer and supplication, with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O God, the great and awesome God, who keeps His covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments, we have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from Your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame. As it is this day to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, who are nearby and those who are far away in all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against Him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in His teachings, which He set before us through His servants the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice to the curse which is poured out on us, along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against Him. Thus He has confirmed His words which He has spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us, to bring on us great calamity, for under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what was done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous and with respect to all his deeds which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, you have brought your people out of the land of Egypt, with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day, we have sinned, we have been wicked. 
O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy mountain, for because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your faith shine upon your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on accounts of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. For your own sake, O oh my God, do not delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. And you can be seated this morning. Don't just wait. Pray. The opening verses of this passage find us here and give a little setting. Daniel tells us that it was in the first year of Darius. Darius was the ruler of the Medo-Persian Empire who had taken the throne after the defeat of the Babylonian Empire uh, after Belshazzar. You remember just a few chapters ago we saw the writing on the wall that came to Belshazzar which predicted this overthrow of Babylon. So now this has taken place, and we find ourselves in around the year 539 B.C., some 66 years since Daniel had been carried into captivity to Babylon. And in the midst of that exile, again, almost now the whole complete 70 years, Daniel has not ceased to study God's Word. And in fact, we'll find this out later, and towards the end of the chapter, his life still, even though he's not been in Jerusalem for some 70 years, and had not been there for the majority of his life because he was taken away as a young boy, his life still revolved around his understanding of the proper worship and the proper recognition of who God was. But in the midst of this exile, Daniel continued to study God's Word. It's even more notable as we think about the man who Daniel was. Daniel was a man who was recognized for his spiritual wisdom and insight. A man who was recognized for his ability to hear from God directly, to be able to interpret these dreams and visions. But yet Daniel still knew how important it was for him to study God's Word for himself. He didn't just rely upon this privilege that he had. He didn't just rely upon this gift that God had given to him. But he still committed himself to study God's Word. And so as Daniel is studying, he finds himself in the book of Jeremiah the prophet. And in the book of Jeremiah the prophet, what Daniel finds is the prophecy that Jeremiah had given about the exile which Daniel found himself in the midst of. Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 11 and 12 says this. Again, this is Jeremiah the prophet speaking on the Lord's behalf. This whole land will be a desolation and a horror. And these nations will serve the kingdom of Babylon 70 years. Then it will be 70 years are completed. I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make an everlasting desolation. So the prophet Jeremiah had foresaw by the hand of God what was going to happen to Jerusalem. And he had written it down. And now Daniel is reading this. And he understands that on the basis of Jeremiah's prophecy, 
And on the basis of the time that's given there, and again, it's very clear that Jeremiah says it's 70 years. And when the 70 years are completed, I will punish the land of the Chaldeans and I will bring my people back. Daniel knew that according to that timetable, that the end of the exile was close. That the hand of the Lord was getting ready to move. And that God was getting ready to do what he had promised to do. So you think about this. Right? As Daniel reads this, surely Daniel says to himself, well, if God's word is true, then all I need to do is just sit back and wait. Right? God's promised he's going to do it, so all I need to do is just sit back and wait for it to happen. If God has ordained it, it will come to pass. Amen. Now, that's true. It is. If God has ordained it, which he had, if God's word is true and every man is a liar, God never says something that He does not do. He never is incomplete in following through with what He's promised to do. So if God said through the prophet Jeremiah in the last 70 years, that it was going to last 70 years. But Daniel also understood something that we also need to understand. That said, even though God will fulfill His promises, that God also uses means to accomplish His, his plan and purposes here on the earth. God's word is going to go forth through the preaching of the gospel. Why? Because that is a means by which God is established. God said to take the gospel to all the world, and he told the disciples to be the ones who preach that gospel. They are the means by which the gospel goes forth. You and I are the means by which God accomplishes his plan and his purpose. Because as God ordains these things to happen, he also ordains the people and the means by which those things will come to pass. So when prophet Jeremiah was speaking of what was going to happen after these 70 years, God was also ordaining the fact that Daniel would be here praying and using the means of prayer which God has given in order to see these things come to pass. We've talked about prayer before. Prayer is not us changing our minds, but prayer is using prayer changing God's mind and is changing our mind to be lined up with where God desires for us to be. Prayer is the means by which God allows us to be a part of what He has ordained to take place. Amen. We pray because God has said, this is how I want these things to unfold. So Daniel begins to pray. And notice there in verse 3, he says, So I gave my attention to the Lord. Some of your older translations, and I like this, he says, I set my face to the Lord. Now Daniel is not bowing in the direction of Jerusalem. He's just setting his mind, setting his heart to focus on the supremacy and the glory of who God is. It's the idea of, of pushing aside every distraction. Daniel wants to go to the Lord in prayer, and he doesn't want anything else to be in his way. He wants to be completely focused on what he wants to say to the Lord. And we understand that because he continues there, and he says, to seek him, by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Brothers and sisters, aren't you glad that the Scripture tells us that if we seek Him, we will find Him. If we go to Him and pray to Him, God hears our prayers. This, this is such a tremendous thing that it is to be a Christian. Get this this morning. No other religious system no other religion has the promise that if you pray, that God hears your prayers. Buddhists, when they pray, they don't know where their prayers go. 
Muslims, when they pray, they, they don't have any consideration that their prayers are heard by anyone because we know they're worshiping false gods. But even for them inside their own religions, believing that they're serving a true God, they have no confidence that their God hears their prayers. Christianity, the true God, is the only one who promises in His Word that when we pray as His children, He hears our prayers. He hears us. He hears the voice of His children. So Daniel commits himself to give attention to the Lord. And notice there it says, with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Fasting, sackcloth, and ashes is, is a symbolic gesture. Again, that was we see this all throughout the Old Testament. That you would stop eating, you would cut off food again to just symbolize that you're willing to, to put your own body into submission and to sacrifice that which is necessary for your own life. Uh, eating and taking in food in order to focus on what you want to do in prayer. Sackcloth was, was the garment of like, you know, uh, old uh, rough hewn garments that were uncomfortable. And then ashes, obviously, just ashes before they would put them on and literally sit in this sackcloth, sit in ashes as a sign of humility and submission before God. Daniel is laying everything out here because his heart is so broken. His heart is so grieved by what has happened to the nation of Israel. And he wants to beseech the Lord on behalf of his people. Daniel doesn't just say, as I said earlier, well God, we know what you promised to do, so we're just going to sit back and wait for it to happen. No, Daniel says, Lord, I just want to remind you again of what your word promised. I want you to remind you again of what you said you were going to do. But before Daniel gets to that, we need to see what he does first. Daniel does the two things that we find in prayer. One is there needs to be a profound time of confession. Look at verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps His covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. He confesses sin. I want you to notice throughout the entirety of this prayer that Daniel not only confesses his sins and the sins of the Jewish people, but he does not pray for the Jewish people as them, but he prays for them as us. Because oftentimes we can be guilty of praying for the sins of our nation by saying, well, Lord, you know what they are doing. And you know how they are acting. Now, Daniel, we know by all accounts, and it's even related to us later in this chapter, Daniel was a righteous man in the sight of the Lord. He had given himself now some 70 years to not being carried away into the ways of Babylon. To not giving over to the worship of idols, but committing himself directly to stay true to exactly what God had called him to do. And God had blessed him entirely for that. But now when Daniel prays throughout this chapter, you're going to find it over and over again. Verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, verse 11. Daniel doesn't say, they have done this. He says, Father, we have sinned. One commentator said this, a nation's sin must be confessed by God's people if they seek God's mercy for their land. Daniel did not view himself as above the rest of the nation of Israel. 
He identified himself right along with everyone else and right along with every sin that they had committed. And he confessed those sins before God. Notice there in that verse, he says, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Daniel here is referring back to those promises which were given by God through Moses to his people. If you obey me, I will bless you. If you do what I've called you to do, then you will experience prosperity and greatness and power, and I will watch over you and keep you and protect you, and no one will be able to come against you. But, if you disobey my word, then these other nations will come in and take you over. If you disobey my word, you will not experience prosperity, but instead poverty. You will not experience victory, but instead defeat. God had made this very clear to His people. Serve me, follow me, and all will go well with you. But if you don't follow after me, everything will go poorly for you. It was a very clear and direct word from the Lord. And Daniel reminds himself, and he calls this back to God, and he says, those, he promises, he keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. God is a covenant-making and keeping God. And God promised his people, all will go well for you if you follow me and obey me and keep my word. That was all the people had to do. Right? But you know the history of the Old Testament. We all do. We've read it. Is that what the people of Israel did? Did they obey God, obey His word, keep His commandment, and so follow along in His joy and His prosperity for them? No. They would for a season. But then eventually the temptations of the world the temptations of idolatry, the temptations of sexuality, the temptations of all these other great nations would begin to creep in and they would begin to turn away from the Lord and turn to these other things. And so Daniel confesses, he says, God, you are a covenant-keeping God. Your love and kindness was poured out upon us and we see it from those who love you and who keep your commandments. In verse 5, Daniel confesses the entirety of their sin. It was Matthew Poole, the pastor and commentator, who said this, observe two things about these verses. Number one, that deep revolting and afflictions call for deep and solemn humiliation. And number two, God's decrees and promises do not excuse us from duty and prayer, but in, in, but in, in case us to require it. If we were to read verse 5, we would think that Daniel, again, if we were removing it out, and we took that we off the, the first of the verse there, he accurately describes everything that's happened. But again, he includes himself in this. He says, we have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have acted wickedly. We have rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Daniel holds nothing back here in his confession. Every area that Daniel refers to here is a separate area of sin. And you can unpack these. We don't have time this morning, but you can unpack every single one of these to their intricate details. But what Daniel is helping us to understand here is that when it comes time to confess sin, there needs to be a clear confession of sin. Oftentimes what we are tempted to do when we pray is say, Father, forgive me for my sins. Because perhaps we're ashamed to list those things out. Or perhaps we're afraid that when we begin to confess some, well, God will reveal to us other areas that we're not ready to 
confess to him in. But confession of sin needs to be thorough. It needs to be clear. Because when we're asking God to forgive us, when Daniel here is praying on behalf of his nation, he doesn't want there to be anything that is not recognized. Daniel recognizes the immense enormity, the grotesqueness of the sin of the nation of Israel against a just and a holy and a righteous God. And he's willing to lay it all out on the table because he's so desperate to see God move in the midst of his people. To quote Matthew Poole again, he says, In our confession of sin to God, there must be no mincing nor cloaking of sin, but a full and naked discovery with self-judgment and self-abhorrence. Daniel was so grieved by the sin of his people that he saw it even in his own life. And he was willing to lay it upon himself because he understood that even though as individuals we stand before God, that as a nation, the entire nation stood before God as well. And their unwillingness to do what God had called them to do. Now why was this so, so palpable for, for Daniel? Right? Because remember when God again had spoken through Moses? He had told them what would happen if you would serve other gods and you follow after other gods. And he had also promised them later on, those two things were in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 28, but he had also promised them in, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, he said that if you return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart according to the command that I've given you, that the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you from all the peoples from where the Lord has scattered you. And if you shall obey the Lord and observe all His commandments which I commanded you, then the Lord will prosper you abundantly in the work of your hand. Later down there in those verses, Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 14, He says, But the word is very near to you, in your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity. And that I command you today to love the Lord and to walk in His ways and to keep His commandments, His statutes and His judgments, that you may live and multiply and the Lord may bless you in the land where you are entering in to possess. God had very clearly given His word to His people. There was no doubt in the nation of Israel what it was that God expected of them. It would be different if God were some vague deity and had given them no guidance, no direction, no forethought into what He expected for them to do. But God had been very crystal clear with the nation of Israel. This is exactly how you are to live, how you are to act, how you are to worship, how you are to obey. Everything was laid out so crystal clear for them in the Word of the Lord. But even more than that, as God's people began to veer away, as God's people began to fall into idolatry, as God's people began to disobey the Lord, what did God do? God sent the prophets. He sent the prophets to come in and to bring a direct word from the Lord, a verbal word that they could hear. Thus saith the Lord to the nation of Israel, Stop. Turn back. Turn from your sin. Flee from immorality. Flee from idolatry. But did they listen? And this is what Daniel confesses now again in verse 6. He says, Moreover, we have not listened 
to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and to all the people of the land. It was a great blessing from God that he sent the prophets to them. God was sending someone. It was a demonstration of God's authority because these men came in the name of God with the word of God. And because it was such a great blessing that he bestowed upon the nation of Israel by sending his prophets, that's why the punishment was so great for their rejection of the prophets. God had said, I'm going to be kind to you. I'm going to show you even more loving kindness by sending to you these ones who come in. And all they're doing is just reminding you of what you already should know. And because you have rejected them, then even greater is the punishment which will fall upon you because you rejected them. Daniel recognizes in verse 7 that all of this happens by God's righteousness. Because he says there, righteousness belongs to you, O Lord. But to us, open shame. Now oftentimes when we see God's righteousness referred to, it's often just discussed in the idea of the judgment of God. We hear about the righteousness of God being poured out upon people. But righteousness is more than just the judgment of God. Righteousness really means integrity. It talks about someone who does what they say they're going to do. That's what righteousness symbolizes. So when we talk about God's righteousness, we're talking about that He always acts in character. He never acts outside of how He is and how He should be. So God had promised in His righteousness, if you obey, all will go well with you. But God had almost also promised in His righteousness that if you disobey, things will go very poorly for you. So Daniel recognizes here that even in the midst of all that they were experiencing by being cast out as exiles into Babylon and suffering under the hand of wicked and evil rulers, that God was still perfectly and totally righteous in everything that He was doing. Because he had promised them from the very beginning, this is exactly what is going to happen. Do this, and this will happen. Do this, and this will happen. God never acted outside, and never will act outside the bounds of who he is in his character and nature. God is perfectly and totally righteous. God was just in his righteousness as he punished Israel. He was just in his righteousness as he allowed them to be carried away into captivity. And Daniel recognized that glory and righteousness belong to him. But he says to us as the people of Israel, he says we deserve open shame because of our disobedience. He says the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel and those who are nearby and those who are far away. You have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. All of Israel was guilty. It wasn't just the ones who were in Babylon. It wasn't just the ones in the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom. It wasn't just the ones who still lived in the land. It was everyone. Those who were in Babylon, those who have been dispersed even further out into further places. He says we are all guilty and worthy and deserving of open shame because, Lord, we have committed unfaithful deeds against you. We have been disobedient. And we deserve your punishment. He repeats this idea in verse 8. He says, open shame belongs to us. 
O Lord, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. There was no level of society that wasn't guilty, from small to mighty, from poor to rich. Daniel says, we all deserve shame because we have sinned against you. And this is such a tragic thing. In fact, E.J. Young, in his commentary, he points this out. He says, what a tragic confession when we consider that Israel was to be a light to all the world. God had said, I have set my hand upon you. I have picked you out. What did Israel do to get picked out by God? Nothing. They were a people of his own choosing. He called them out. He set them apart. And why did God give to the nation of Israel all these ceremonial laws? All these laws for cleanliness. All these laws to avoid idolatry and immorality. He did that because he wanted them to be a people that was different from every other people on the face of the earth. He wanted every other nation to look to Israel and be like, there's something weird about those people. There's something different about those people. And it's the same thing that carries over to Christians in the New Testament. We are called to be a set-apart people because God is the one who set us apart. The rest of the world should look at us and say, there's something that I can't quite figure out about that group of people over there. Mm-hmm. It's our responsibility. It's our task. And Daniel is confessing this. He says, we deserve open shame, O oh God, because you had called us to be a people that was set apart. A people that would be recognized as a people of God. A people that should be a light to the world. And instead of being a light to the world, we are being derisioned by the world. We are being made fun of by the world. We have just given ourselves over to everything that this world has to offer. And we're unrecognizable from any other group on the face of the earth. And Daniel was heartbroken, my friend. He was grieved. He says, we have sinned against you. In verse 9, Daniel begins to remind the Lord of some of his attributes. Not that the Lord had forgotten them, but we see this all throughout the Scripture. We see the psalmist doing this from time to time. Remember, O Lord, your goodness. Remember your righteousness. Remember your faithfulness. He says, to our Lord, to the Lord our God, belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against Him. Even in the midst of judgment, Daniel recognized the compassion and the forgiveness of God. You can say, well, well how, how, how can Israel, in being carried away to Babylon, in, in suffering under wicked leaders, in experiencing defeat, in watching the city be destroyed, in watching the temple be desecrated, how could they have been experiencing the compassion and the forgiveness of God? Well, number one, was because they deserved much worse. They deserved much worse than what they were experiencing in Babylon. Because they had rejected and rebelled against the Holy God. It's the same thing when you hear people talk. And you hear people talk about the idea of God's foreordaining and electing. And they say, well, that's not fair. Brothers and sisters, you don't want God to be fair. Amen. If God were fair then none of us would have a chance. If God gives fairness, that means all of us are doomed and there's no hope for anyone. If God had done what what the nation of Israel deserved, they wouldn't have even made it to Babylon. He would have just killed them there outside the city. 
Even just allowed all of them to be massacred right there on the spot because they had rebelled against him. They had fully, completely turned their backs on God. So God showed them compassion and forgiveness by allowing them to be carried away into captivity instead of killing them. His chastisement on the nation of Israel was another demonstration of his compassion towards them. The scripture tells us that God corrects those whom he loves. Just as a parent corrects a child because you love that child and you want what's better for them, God in this exile was chastising his nation and in that chastisement showing them compassion and forgiveness. And God also showed his compassion and forgiveness for them because he preserved them. He brought them to the end as he promised that he would. And Daniel's now getting ready to see the fulfillment of that. That now some 70 years later, as Jeremiah prophesied, God was going to bring them out and to preserve them. But Daniel continues. He says, we've rebelled against him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings, which he set before us in his servants, the prophets. He's just confessing. And we see some repetition there because no doubt Daniel, as he prays about these things, he's just reminded really of how foolish the nation of Israel had been because God had so clearly given them instructions. Right. I mean, how, how could it go any other way if God had so clearly said, this is what you should do? Now, now let's, let's, let's take a moment this morning to remind ourselves of the fact that we are no different than the nation of Israel. We tend to think that if we were in the nation of Israel's shoes, that surely we would act differently than they did. But we wouldn't. Because they are sinful humans just like we're sinful humans. And we are easily given over to things. We're easily distracted, easily taken away. So we're not pointing our finger and saying, well, how foolish are they? But we are, in a sense, pointing back and saying, how foolish could you be? That God would so clearly tell you what you should do through His Word, through His voice, by sending you the prophets, but yet you still rejected His teachings. He confesses because it was so plainly and powerfully set before them. He confesses it over and over and over again to the Lord. Again, hiding nothing, keeping nothing back. This is the heart of prayer. That we confess not just our transgressions, but the transgressions of our people. That as the people of God, we should confess the sins of our people. We should confess even the sins of our nation. Indeed, he says, verse 11, all Israel has transgressed. Transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Daniel again recognizes that promise that had been given through Moses. He continues there in verse 12. Thus he has confirmed his words, which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring on us great calamity. For under heaven there has not been anything like what was done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. So now is the third component of this. God had given his word the law, and the people had rejected it. God had sent his prophets, and the people had rejected it. 
And now Daniel says, now God is confirming this to what he promised to Moses. If, if the, just the, the law was not enough, and if just the prophets were not enough, it should have behooved the nation of Israel to just think back in their history. And to remember what God had said through, the, through Moses in giving this promise and giving this command there in Deuteronomy 28-30, especially as they begin to experience the judgment of God. Because the nation of Israel had been a proud nation throughout all of this time. They had seen great victory in the hand of God where they could go in and defeat nations that were ten times as powerful as they were, but yet God would give them the victory. And the holy city there had been kept by God, had been protected by God. And Daniel points this out. He says, in the midst of watching all of this happen, in the midst of everything unfolding, and the people being carried away to Babylon, and the city being destroyed, and the temple being desecrated, he said, surely we should have woken up and remembered that God had promised this is what was going to happen. <coughs> and that God also said that in the midst of that, if you turn back to me, then I will bring this to an end. But Daniel says there, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God. Why or how? By turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Mm -hmm. sisters, here is the key factor. The people of Israel, no doubt, were praying to God and saying, God, why? Why are you allowing this to happen? God, will you bring this to an end? God, will you cause something to happen? But you know what they weren't doing in the midst of that prayer? They weren't turning from their sin and obeying what God had already clearly commanded them to do. Amen. And that's the problem. But it's just, we can pray till our faces are blue. Mm -hmm. But if we don't do what God has already told us to do, we're praying in vain. Amen. God has commanded. He's given us so many times we pray about things that God has already clearly told us how we should handle them. But we pray because we're hoping that God will give us a different way out. And this is what was going on with the nation of Israel. They're praying and praying for God's mercy, but, but, but just clearly being obstinate to the fact that He's already told them what they needed to do. And all they needed to do was just to turn from their sin, to turn from their wickedness, and give attention to His truth. And Daniel said, we wouldn't do it. Despite all of this, despite the midst of their calamity, besides all the difficulty they're facing, they would refuse to turn from their sin and obey the Word of God. He says, therefore, the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. God was in full control of what happened to the nation of Israel. He was in full control when Babylon took them into captivity. He was in full control of the entire 70 years. And God had kept that calamity in store. It's like that he held on to it. And he said, okay, I promised you what's going to happen. And then when they disobeyed, God said, okay, here it is. It's been prepared for you, and I'm giving it to you. But notice what Daniel says here. He says, for the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which we have done, but we have not obeyed his voice. Brothers and sisters, let's be clear on this this morning. God is not just righteous in His acts of blessing, but He is also righteous in His acts of judgment. Amen. Oftentimes, we can miss the fact that even in our very own lives, when we experience the judgment of God, we think that God is being unrighteous towards us or that God has forgotten us. 
But remember, this whole theme throughout the entirety of this book has been the sovereignty of God in every event of our life. Nothing, nothing, nothing happens in this life without the sovereign plan and purpose of God. Amen. And in the midst of that, God shows His righteousness towards us in His blessing in our life and in His judgment in our life. And Daniel recognized this for the entirety of the nation of Israel. God was totally and perfectly and justly righteous even in all the difficulty, trial, and tribulation, and punishment that Israel was experiencing at this moment. He said God was perfectly righteous in doing this, but notice there at the end of verse 14, but we have not obeyed His voice. So Daniel now lays out all this confession. He confesses the entirety of everything that he can think of. He's so clear with the Lord. Lord, we have nothing. We have no right to ask besides your mercy and grace. There's nothing we've done. And now here in verse 15, Daniel turns to this supplication. Now he's going to ask God to do what it is he wants God to do. And what is that thing? He's going to now turn and ask that God would bring an end to this exile. Now remember, Daniel already knows that it's been promised. It's already been promised. It's, already, it's, it's as sure as done because God said he was going to do it through the prophet Jeremiah. But now Daniel turns his heart and he asks for God, God, now do that thing which you have promised that you would do. But Daniel doesn't do this on the basis of the people's repentance. He doesn't do this on the goodness of the nation of Israel because they had no repentance and they had no goodness. Instead, notice as we look at these verses that Daniel pleads his case with the Lord on the basis of God's own glory. He says, for your glory, Lord, do this thing. Verse 15, he says, and now, O Lord our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and have made a name for yourself, as it is this day, we have sinned and been wicked. He reminds God of what he did in Egypt. Right? When God was the one, because the people of Israel could not have rescued themselves out of Egypt. It was only by the hand of God that it was done. And it was recognized by all those who saw that this could only be the hand of the God of Israel that would be able to bring these people out of this land of bondage and send them out onto uh, the, the Red Sea. Dry on the bottom as they escaped Pharaoh and all of his soldiers. So Daniel prays. He says, God, remember what you did for Egypt? Remember that it made a name for yourself, that it brought glory and honor to you? He says, now, Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. Daniel says, Lord, because of our sin, your holy city has become tarnished. Because of our sin, Lord, your holy city, Jerusalem, has become a reproach to everyone. So, Lord, would you not turn back your anger, turn back your wrath against us, so that once again, your holy city can become a beacon of shining light to all around us? Lord, you deserve this. You deserve that your city and your people would not be a reproach, but you deserve that your people and your city would be a great example of who you are. Amen. Again, let me quote Matthew Poole. 
quote, it's as if he said, Lord, according to thy righteousness, thou hast punished thy people as they justly deserved. Now also, according to thy mercy, which is the other part of your righteousness, save your people, though they deserve it not. Daniel cried out that God would redeem his people, redeem his city because of the reproach that had been brought upon them. Because Daniel was concerned, in a sense we could say, with the reputation of God. He wanted God's name to be recognized as holy and high and exalted. Because in much the same way as it happens today, God's people were a representative of who God was. That's why today as Christians we talk about this. We're to live a life that honors and pleases God because people hear that we are Christians and they look at our lives and they see how, they, how we live our lives and they make judgments about who God is and what Christianity is based upon the way that we live out our lives in front of them. Amen. And it was that way for the nation of Israel. Because they claimed to serve the only true and the living God, the people of the world looked at the nation of Israel and they said, okay, how are they behaving? How are they acting? How are they demonstrating this? And as they fell into sin, it tarnished the name and the recognition of who God was. In fact, we can say very clearly, they blasphemed God's name by their actions. And so Daniel is praying that God would give them a new chance, that he would redeem them out of that, not for their own glory, but for the glory of his own name. Daniel's deepest concern was that God's name would not be sullied. That God's name and reputation would not be tarnished. That's why he says there in verse 17, he says, Lord, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. What? For your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. Again, sometimes it's hard for us to wrap our minds around the importance of this temple there in Jerusalem. Because as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, this to us is a building. We may love it, we may cherish it, we may have fond memories here, but this is just a building. God's presence does not live inside the four walls of this building. God's presence lives in, inside each and every one of us. But for the nation of Israel, this was the place where God's presence was. This is the place where they went to meet with God, where they went to hear from God. It was all done there in the temple. And so for it to be in ruins, for it to be desecrated, was such a tarnish on the name of who God was. The, the temple was that place. When you walked into the city of Jerusalem in Daniel's day, it was the first thing that you saw. It was the most recognizable building in all the land. Because it said something about that city. It said something about who this God was. As a side note, that's also why when you look at history... American history, British history, world history. That's why most often churches had the tallest steeples, the tallest parts of the buildings and cities when he went into because it was a recognition of who God was, a recognition that people were setting aside a place to worship. But that's for another day. Daniel's heart was given to this. He wanted to see God's glory restored. Not for the people's sake, but for God's own sake. Daniel was not concerned with his reputation. He was concerned with the reputation of God. Look at verse 18. He says, O God, incline your ear and hear. 
Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you, listen to this, on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. Daniel's saying, Lord, the only way that we can ask you this is because you are a compassionate and a merciful God. We have nothing to offer. We have no merits. We have no goodness. We have nothing that we can say. And again, who's praying this? This is not just the average person of the nation of Israel there in, in exile. This is Daniel himself. And even Daniel confesses. And even as the most righteous man of God who was alive perhaps on earth at that time, he says, we have nothing to offer you, God, but to plead for your mercy. Verse 19 has been highlighted by many as such a beautiful demonstration of fervent prayer. Look at what he says there. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, listen and take action for your own sake. O oh my God, do not delay. The time has come, Lord. Act. Do what you promised. You said that you were going to do it. And do it, he says, because your city and your people are called by your name. This was all about the glory of God. As long as the temple, as long as God's people were reproached, then God's name was being defamed in the world. And Daniel wanted to see the glory and the holiness and the righteousness of God restored in the light of the world. It wasn't that God's glory and holiness had gone away. God did not cease to be glorious. He did not cease to be holy. He did not cease to be righteous simply because the temple had been desecrated. But it was in the light of the world. Because they did not see any recognition or sign of who God was, that He had this great power. So Daniel pours out his heart. One commentator calls this an intensity of conviction. Because Daniel is so passionately pleading to the Lord on this behalf. So we talked about confession. We talked about supplication. And now I want you to notice here two things in these last two verses. Both the answer to prayer and Daniel's commitment to prayer. He says, now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before my God on behalf of the holy mountain of God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. Let's start first with Daniel's commitment to prayer. You remember I said earlier that it had been some 70 years now that Daniel had been in exile. Some 70 years since Daniel had seen the city of God. Some 70 years since Daniel had been to the temple. The temple was not offering sacrifice. The temple was, had been desecrated. God's people were not there. They were not allowed to do any of those things. They were not, the, the, the morning and evening sacrifices were not happening. But notice what Daniel says here. He says, came about the time of the evening offering. Because Daniel's life was so focused on the worship of God so committed to the obedience to God's word that now some 70 years later, Daniel's life was still shaped by the regular times of sacrifice that were practiced in Israel. He had not forgotten. 
He had not forgotten those two times of the day when the sacrifices were offered. And so he had committed himself that in the time of the evening offering, he was going to set aside time to pray. He humbled himself. Daniel was committed to his obedience to the Lord. He prayed. And here in verses 20 and 21, we see that as Daniel was not even yet done praying. He hadn't even said amen yet. He was still in the midst of confessing sin, still presenting a supplication. And all of a sudden there, as he was still praying, Gabriel, again the angel stands before him. And Gabriel comes to tell Daniel that God is bringing his answer. Now, brothers and sisters, we have a couple of things here. We understand that God always hears our prayers. But we also need to understand that God always answers our prayers. No, that's right. It may not be in the way that we see, and it may not be in the timing that we expect. Here, Daniel gets an answer immediately. Sometimes God's answers are delayed, but it does not mean that he does not answer. Amen. He answers in one shape, form, fashion, or another. But we need to give ourselves to this type of prayer. We need to confess our sins, confess the sins of our people, confess the sins of the people of God, and beseech God that He would do something great. Now we know specifically here, Daniel's related this, this is going to be tied in with the prophecy that we're going to look at next week, but there is such a very clear picture and practice that we should apply here to our own lives. That true prayer involves a robust confession of sin. Amen. And true prayer involves a supplication that pours a, a humble heart out before God. Amen. That God would do things for His glory. Yes. Think about some of the things that God has commanded us to pray for. We pray for the righteousness of our nation. We pray for our leaders. And if our leaders are obedient to God, who gets the glory? God does. We're commanded to pray for lost people. Commanded to pray for the spread of the gospel. And if the gospel spreads, if people get saved, who gets the glory? God does. We're, to com we're commanded to pray for the sick. And if we pray for the sick, and God answers that prayer, then who gets the glory? God does. Amen. This is what we see, is that prayer, even sometimes in the things that we pray for, for our own self, Right? When we are desperate and in need and we pray for God to help us for a financial need, we pray to God to help us with a new job, we pray to God to help us with, with a matter of, of, of a family crisis, and God answers that prayer, who gets the glory? God does. Amen. So we need to understand that when we pray, we are sometimes praying for very specific, sometimes minute things in our lives. But we're praying, and we should pray to say, God, you could do this, you should do this, because you are the one who can receive the glory for this. Amen. You are the one who will receive the honor for this. Daniel's life was guided by his commitment to the glory and the honor of God. Now next week, we're going to see how this prayer was answered in totality. How God shows Daniel through the word of Gabriel these 70 weeks. And it falls very perfectly. Next week is Christmas Eve. And 
next week we're going to look at these 70 weeks and we're going to look at a sermon entitled When Messiah Comes. And I hope that by the end of our time next week that you'll be encouraged by the answer to Daniel's prayer. Amen. That you'll be encouraged by what God promises here through His obedience and through His fulfillment of His promise through the word Jeremiah. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank You for this time. We thank You for Your goodness and Your graciousness towards us. And Lord, help us to be people of prayer. Lord, help us to be people who, as Daniel did, who are willing to robustly confess our sins. Lord, hiding nothing from You, holding nothing back, that our lives are open, but before You, Father, we know that You know everything about our lives. There is nothing that is hidden, nothing that we can keep secret from You. But Lord, we need to confess those things to You. We need to verbally lay them out and Lord, demonstrate our submission to you. Lord, help us as we pray for collectively as a people of God that we pray for each other, that we confess our sins and our shortcomings again. And Father, not pointing the finger at others, but Father, that we are all guilty. We have sinned against you. And Father, help us to pray with boldness as Daniel did. Lord, we can be bold in our prayers because of your promises and because of your covenant. We can be bold in our prayers because of who you are, that you are a righteous and a holy God. And Lord, we pray for these things, Father, not because we want the glory, but Father, because we want you to receive the glory. Father, help us to never pray selfish prayers. They would put ourselves at the center of the glory, but Father, that we would pray prayers that desire to see you and your name exalted and lifted up. Father, we thank you for the work of your hand, for the promise of your word, Lord, and for your glory. And we ask all these things this morning in Jesus' name.